Good morning. You guys all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed after your days off? Have you recovered from your turkey feast? I have put on a few pounds, and yet I'm still bald. So I thought that was going to fix it. Hey, take your Bibles. Go to John chapter 1. This morning, we're going to do a lot of zigging and zagging and all that good stuff. So you're going to have to be either really quick with your thumbs, or I will give you the references. You can read some of these stories afterwards as we walk through some things that are in Scripture to kind of set up where we're going. First, before I jump into this, we are beginning our Christmas series. So that means your Christmas shopping should be done. Good luck to you. You all know, and I do not make it a secret, mine has not begun yet. I do mine Christmas Eve day. I like living dangerously, and my wife appreciates weird gifts that I buy when I'm standing in line checking out. Like, here's, here's these strange magazine articles, just for you, honey. No, I'm just kidding. Um, as we're jumping into this, let me remind you the last week or two here of... Um, uh, next week or two, are kind of the uh, deadline for the angel tree. So the angel tree, again, is our opportunity to serve those in need, whether it be in our community or even here in our church family. And, and a number of us have already jumped on. We are north of 50% of the gifts already um, spoken for, so we praise God for that. But we have a little bit further to go, and so I want to encourage you. You can stop by the tree and grab one of the ornaments, but on the ornament it just says this. Go to utown.org slash Christmas and get signed up. So let me encourage you to do that today uh, so we can um, meet not just that goal, but the needs of those people um, within our community. Let me, word of explanation is needed about the um, Christmas series title. Love the graphic. Very Christmassy, isn't it? Behold. So this summer while I was on sabbatical, I did a little work, but not like work work. I was you know, praying through and thinking through and reading a lot of scripture and figured, you know what I want to do? I want to go ahead and plan the Christmas series while I'm doing my, my scripture reading. And so I was reading through the English Standard Version, and I was reading all these verses, and it was popping out at me how many times in scripture it says, Behold! Now, if you grew up in a traditional church as I did, uh, or you're as old as I am, or older and much better looking, you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible. So you have practiced for years how to lisp while you read Scripture. There's also a word the King James uses over and over again. It's on your screen right here. Behold. In the King James Version, that, the word um, ide in the Greek is translated behold. And the Hebrew word, which I don't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but that word is translated as behold 1,288 times. This summer, as I was reading the English Standard Version as for my Bible reading, um, English Standard Version translates that, the, that word as behold and uses it 1,069 times. So it's pretty safe to be like, let's do a series on all, not all the times, but let's do a series on a number of times that says behold. And so we went with it, we planned it, I did all the, the studying and the, the preparation, and then I opened up my Christian Standard Bible, which is the one I like to preach out of, and the Christian Standard Bible uses the word behold exactly zero times. Maybe you're an NIV person. The new international version uses it exactly once. So that was a failure on my part to plan. But the idea stays. And I will have no problem saying behold, because I think behold is just a different enough word for us to help us recognize that something unique is happening. Something different is happening. And, and it doesn't quite have the same oomph when you're like, look! I bring you glad tidings of good joy. Now, behold! And so uh, you'll see that pop up a couple times. I just wanted to explain that. All right, now, 
kind of did this all out of order, but that's okay. It's me. You're used to that. If I say at any time of year and ask you this question, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to have you talk to a couple people around you. So be prepared. For you introverts, I'm sorry. I still love you. When I talk about turkeys, and I say, what comes to mind when I talk about turkeys? When I say the word turkey, other than the fact that it sounds weird now, what is that word? What, 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 what memories come to mind for you? What do you think about when I talk about turkeys? Go ahead. Talk. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm going there. So <laughs> go ahead and, and talk amongst yourselves just for a moment. What comes to mind for you when we talk about turkeys? Oh, there's some energy. And yeah, this, is, this is an energetic turkey conversation right here. All right, all right, okay. So for some of you, some of you, you think turkey, we just ate a whole mess of turkey? That's what you do with turkeys. Turkeys is the meal that you have for Thanksgiving. It might even be the meal you have for Christmas. Very rarely do you actually have like a full-blown turkey meal in March, right? Doesn't happen very often. It might, might. Um, for some of you, maybe the idea came to mind. You know, you got your hand, you put it on the paper, you trace it, right? Turkey! I mean, you saw my artwork a few weeks ago. That's pretty much how that works. So maybe for some of you, you were like, when I was a kid, we had this play. I had to be the turkey. Right? You know what the cool part about that story is? That kid's parent is like, you know, when he was a kid, he had to be the turkey. And still needs counseling. <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to assume and when somebody starts talking about turkey and turkey dinners and drawing a turkey and all that, the idea of thankfulness or thanksgiving or family or you all have kind of similar memories grouped together, right? That word brings thoughts to mind. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Talking about John the Baptist here starting in verse 19 and he's He's talking to the Jews and the, the priests and the, the Pharisees, and they send people to John the Baptist, and they're like, who in the world are, is this guy? I mean, he's, a, he's an odd bird, right? I mean, this is the fellow who dresses in camel skin and, and, and eats honey. He says, well, I'll tell you who I'm not, verse 20. I'm not the Messiah. Well, then who are you? They said in verse 21, are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Then who are you? We need to go back and give an answer to the people who sent us. So what can you tell us about yourself? So verse 22, John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just like Isaiah the prophet said. They had been sent from the Pharisees, so their next question was this. Then do you baptize? Then why, then why do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? So as John says, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's the one that's coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And John tells us, now this all happened in Bethany across the Jordan River where John was actually doing his, his baptizing. And we don't know how much longer from that, or further away from that, how many more days, hours. Actually, we do. I take that back. Verse 29 says it's the very next day, doesn't it? 
The next day, John is standing there, and he sees Jesus coming towards him, and he says this, John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As soon as the people <clears throat> heard John the Baptist say that, just like you immediately went someplace when I said turkeys, they would have heard the lamb and their mind would have gone to dozens of stories, dozens of memories, teaching, theology. They would have been running from the very beginning of the Old Testament and tracing a path all the way through the Old Testament when the word or the animal, the lamb, is mentioned, when a lamb is used, when a lamb becomes the highlight of the story. Some of them would have run to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, you've got Abraham who has been waiting for 25 years since God promised him he would have a son. Abraham, who has now just celebrated his 100th birthday, has a baby boy. Happy 100th birthday. That's what you want for your birthday, right? And Abraham is ecstatic. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is my son. This is the one God has promised that through him, there will be a, a nation of people who are blessed by God through this little boy. This is amazing. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, God goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about. And early the next morning, Abraham gathered up his son and his supplies, and they headed toward the mountain. They travel for almost three days. They get to the mountain. They look up. They know this is it. Abraham knows this is it. Okay, okay. And he says to his servants, you guys stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going up there to worship. And then we'll return to you. Now, there's so many different ways to go, and I don't have time to go there, even though I'm really tempted to go there. What does Abraham say? We're going up there to worship. What is Abraham getting out of his worship? Is he getting that emotional, yeah, I love worship? Is he walking out here like, the worship is so much fun? No, in Abraham's mind, what Abraham is getting out of worship is a dead son. It's not about what Abraham gets. Now in that moment, it's that God has called him to do something, and Abraham doesn't understand it from, at, at all, not even a little, and yet he goes up the mountain, and he says, well, me and the boy are going to worship, and then we'll return to you, which is a little glimpse into what Abraham was thinking was going to happen. As they're heading up the mountain, Isaac, um, I think in our mind, we think Isaac is like three or four years old at this time, and now he's a teenager. So Isaac is walking up the mountain with his daddy. Here's what his daddy says probably waits a little while, considering all of the things that are happening, looking at the fire that Abraham has in his hand, or the knife that Abraham has in his hand, the wood for the burnt offering that he's carrying up the mountain. He's got to ask his dad a question because there's something missing. Hey, dad, um, okay, got the wood, got the fire, got the knife. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's response is, son, God himself is going to provide the lamb for the sacrifice. They continue their journey up the mountain. Abraham takes the sword and uh, the, the knife in hand. Isaac sits on the altar. 
And it's not, it's not this theatrical, big, like, oh, I am going to, oh, I sacrifice my son, and he's going to come up. No, the, the sacrifices were, you, you would have to hold them still. You would have to wrap your hand around their forehead and pull them back so their neck was exposed. That's what you would do to the lambs. So it's very likely that Abraham has wrapped his hand around his own son, the one he waited that long for. Pulled back his head to expose his neck and had the knife in hand, it says. He had the knife in hand. How many of you dads would actually have the knife in your hand? And God spoke to him. Abraham, wait, hold on, Abraham. Now I know you fear me. Now I know you won't hold anything back from me. <laughs> and he finds a ram stuck in the thicket, in the bushes. See, what has happened is a few things, and again, I could spend forever just on this story. I've told this story to you probably a thousand times in the last seven years. But on the way up, Abraham says, God's going to provide a lamb. They get to the top of the mountain, God provides a ram. Wait, did God mess up? Did Abraham mess up? Lamb, ram, they rhyme. Maybe it's a problem with the Bible. Oh, no, see. I believe Abraham wasn't talking about the ram that was going to be up at the top of the hill. I believe that God provided a ram and not a lamb so that theologians hundreds of years later couldn't be like, you know, Abraham was talking about that animal. No. (laughs) No, it's clear Abraham was talking about a lamb that was still yet to come. God will provide the lamb. And here's John the Baptist standing in front of these people saying, Behold! The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Maybe their minds went to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Maybe their minds went to Exodus chapter 12 when they're trying to get out of Egypt. And and, and, and God appears to Moses and says, this is what you need to do. Every family needs to get their own lamb. Every um, um, every family needs to bring that lamb from their flock home. It's got to be one year old. It's got to be unblemished. You've got to keep it until the, the 14th day of the month, and then you slaughter all of those animals at midnight. The entire nation of Israel is to do this. Then you're to take the blood, and in our minds, we, we just seriously sanitize every story we read because it makes us uncomfortable. We've got to stop doing that with God's word. This is, this is graphic. In this moment, they slaughter the animals, and what they're supposed to do is take the blood, not with like a a little paintbrush, and be like, oh, a little here and a little there and a little bit there. No, man, you you take the hyssop, and you dip it in there, and when you pull it up, there is blood dripping from it. You're just putting it on your doorpost because I gotta put a little extra on there. What if it's not enough? Because what was gonna happen was the angel of death was gonna pass over, and whoever didn't have the blood on their doorposts, their oldest was gonna die. And then when they left Egypt, God said, every year I want you to do this as a ceremony. I want you to do this in remembrance of the way that I have provided for you and brought you out of Egypt. I want you to do this in such a way that that your children ask you this question. What does this ceremony mean to you, Daddy? And what you're supposed to respond to him is this. This is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. Because he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared, he spared us. Behold, that's the Lamb of God. 
He, he's the better Passover sacrifice. We, we've got to do this Passover thing over time, year after year after year. And here standing before us is the lamb that God has provided us. Maybe their minds went to the Passover lamb. Maybe their minds simply went to, to the, the, the uh, description of the sacrifices that were to be offered every day. You know, the priests were supposed to take a, a year or two-year-old lamb or sheep with them to the, uh, to the altar. And every morning and every evening, they were supposed to kill one. Every morning and every evening, they had to kill one. Every morning, every evening, they had to kill one. Every morning, every evening, they had to kill one. Every morning. Every, you think that's getting repetitive? Try doing it for centuries. Oh, but it wasn't just every morning and every evening. That was just for the nation. No, if the people sinned, they were required to bring their offering. They were required to bring their, their sacrifices. And Exodus chapter 29 tells us that, that what they were to do was to, to come with this, the, 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 the um, the, the unblemished one, the, the, the guilt offering, the one that would cover the payment for their sins. Leviticus 14 walks through the sacrifices. Maybe the minds of the people went to Leviticus 14. When John the Baptist stood before all of those people who wanted to talk about religion, why are you baptizing? I mean, I believe in a different kind of baptism. Why do you believe in that baptism? Maybe we, should, maybe we should talk and talk about the nuances of baptism. Do you go forward? Do you go backwards? Do you hold them under? I mean, how do you baptize? John the Baptist says, no, behold the Lamb of God. This is, this is the Lamb of God. Lambs were inseparably linked to the sin of the people of Israel. And I've kind of mentioned already, man, that those lambs really didn't do a whole lot for the people, though, did they? Sacrifices happen every day, multiple times. They happen for hundreds of years, centuries upon centuries upon centuries. It's, it's kind of like making your bed. Kind of like making your bed. Why, why do you have to make your bed? Because I slept in it last night. I used it last night. So you've got to make it this morning. Well, do you really? Well, that's a question I have. But for illustration purposes, yes, you do. You absolutely have to make your bed every day because you used it last night. It's the same thing happening with these sacrifices over and over and over. They've got to sacrifice over and over and over. I'm going to read this, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm, I don't have it on a slide for you, but you can write that down. Hebrews chapter 10 It's just beautiful. I love, I love the language of the author of Hebrews. He says, since the law has only a shadow of good things to come. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about all of those references to the lambs we just talked about. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, I mean, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have consciousness of sin? So, so if it actually was efficacious, then, then they would have to stop doing the sacrifices because there'd be no reason for the sacrifices, right? That's what the author's saying. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. Hebrews 10, 11 says this, every priest stands, I love this, day after day, offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But behold, this man, after offering one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Not only did he only have to offer it once, he got to offer it once and watch football. Because there's no more work to do. Behold, 
the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Oh, you didn't get to provide it out of your own family. You didn't get to go out to your flock and pick one. No, God is the one who provided it. This is his lamb, John says. He gave it. He's the only one who can provide an acceptable sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that sacrifice was once for all. And that lamb of God purchased our forgiveness, not by gold or silver or anything perishable, Peter says, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are here and you don't know that forgiveness, there, there is no sacrifice you can make to earn it. There is no act of service that you can offer to satisfy the holiness of God. You need the forgiveness of God, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. And, and so, okay, I don't want to skip this. If you're here and, and, and that's news to you, and let me tell you how simple it is. It's simply admitting with your mouth that your life demonstrates to be true every day. That in your sin, you have been separated from God. And no matter how hard you try, the best you can do is just shine your sin. And because of your sin, you are separated from him. And hopeless. But God loved us. And demonstrated a mercy for us that is unthinkable. And sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. He lived that perfect life, so he was the perfect sacrifice. He laid down his life on the cross where you should have laid down yours, and he shed his blood for your sins. Receiving that forgiveness is not walking an aisle. It's not raising a hand. It's not jumping down. It's not getting a tattoo. It's not shaving your head. Receiving that forgiveness is admitting with your mouth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die for your sins, and that you are trusting in none other but Christ. Take a shot in the dark here, though. 99.9% of you, that's not new to you. Many of you, like me, grew up in church. You've, you've heard the message. You even got to participate in what used to be high-tech Sunday school in the 70s, 80s, and 90s with this awesome thing called flannel graph. How many of you got to play with flannel graph as a kid? Oh, yeah. That, I mean, come on, that thing was, that was multifunctional. I mean, think about it, the same little dude that was Moses one day, the next day you hand him a sling and he's David. That's awesome, all right? You get the green background. This is the way it usually worked in our churches, right? And the green background, and, 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 and you'd put up, like, the big palaces, and it was just really cool. And as a kid, I was mesmerized by this. Like, how does it stay there? It's awesome. It's magic, right? I don't know who your Sunday school teacher was, um, and I don't know who mine was, honestly, either. <laughs> so... Um, I can't throw a name out there, but, but she would every faithfully set up the planograph and be like, look, oh, and there it was, like every, every like at least once a month, maybe once a quarter, it seemed like every week, she'd be like, and look, palaces, and golden roads, and look, pearly gates, that's heaven, boys and girls, isn't that wonderful, isn't that where you want to go, and then she would find this black planograph, which we never saw before, and she'd put it up, and there'd be flames, and evil things, she's like, and that's the bad place. And you don't want to go there, right? So you should pray this prayer. <laughs> and there's some truth in that. Mostly. <laughs> but if that's as far as you've gotten in your understanding of who God is and what he's done for you, then you have no understanding as to why John the Baptist is standing there as Jesus walks by with his brain blown. But behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
Because you, you may have forgiveness. You, you might have forgiveness. But unfortunately, your forgiveness really just lands in religion oftentimes, or habit, or a, a cultural experience. Say a prayer and I'm in. Go to church on Sunday, everything's I'm okay. But what ends up happening when life falls apart is you are still just as angry, you are still just as broken, you find yourself still just as addicted, you are still just as frustrated, and now, because you've attached yourself to God, you're in fact now mad at God as well. What I love is although forgiveness is absolutely true, necessary, and wonderful for us, and we celebrate that here. That's not what John the Baptist is talking about. Why'd you waste your time on that? Well, okay, it's part of what he's talking about. But let me tell you what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing the fact that the Lamb of God doesn't just bear the weight of the sins of the world. Well, T would have said that. Now he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> His sacrifice is absolutely effective because of who he is, the Lamb of God. But he came to do more than just bleed on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin. He's going to carry your sin as far as the east is from the west. He came to take away the sin of the world. Okay, every once in a while I'd like to teach you a little bit of Greek. You ready for a little bit of Greek? I'm going to teach you Greek. What's the Greek word for take away? It is, are you ready? It's going to be really easy to remember this one. Arrow. Arrow. Take away. That's the Greek verb to take away. Arrow. Say arrow with me. How many of you think you actually said something Greek? You did, but you're not. You're like, no. Bing, right? It's a great way to remember that word. Because that's the picture. The Lamb of God didn't just come to shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. The Lamb of God came to do far more than that. He came to carry your sins as far away as the east is from the west with taking them away. So, so just like, this, get this, just like when he says, behold the Lamb of God, the audience would have been like, lambs, we know lambs. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 23, Genesis chapter 28, Leviticus 14. But when he says, takes away the sin of the world, the exact same thing happens. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. We're talking about something that's more than just substitution, more than just salvation, more than just forgiveness, more than just sacrifice, more than just atonement. We're talking about expiation and that's what you were all thinking right expiation is a deep good hardcore theological word expiation heard a, a, a pastor i think it was a pastor was speaking <laughs> i don't know who it was maybe it was in my dreams no, i don't think so um but he was speaking and he used a, a theological word and he's like hold on hold on how many of you are afraid to speak in front of your churches and use theological words and sometimes i'm like yeah i don't know expiation anybody anybody and he's like, listen, if your people, and this is you he's talking about, and he's absolutely right, can order a venti caramel macchiato and know exactly what's in it, how many shots you want, and if you want it upside down, upside right, then you can handle the word expiation. The word expiation means to extinguish the guilt by carrying it away. And as soon as he said, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world oh man they're like expiation where do they get that idea it's out of leviticus 16 and i do not have time to go there and i'm really bummed and i know we started the service at 9 15 not so i could preach to 10 30 but that could happen so buckle up i'm gonna see what happens <laughs> being honest sorry 
I'm going to go apologize to the children's workers again. Um. <laughs> day of atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. What would happen is that once a day, once a day, once a year, um, the priest would get ceremonially bathed. Uh, he would change out of the very fancy high priest garb that he would wear, and he would put on these very simple, plain, humble linen cloths. Uh, he would then offer a bull as a sin offering for himself and for his house. He would take the coals from, and he would, uh, from the altar and, and he would uh, put them with some incense so, so that it would be like this big smoky event. He'd bring it into the most holy place and he would put it before the Lord in, in the hopes that the cloud would rise up and, and protect the priest from seeing the fullness of the glory of God because if he looked upon the fullness of the glory of God, he was going to die. And so he would kind of smoke bomb, Right? the coals and the incense, and it, and it goes up. And so the, then what he does, he takes blood and he sprinkles it in front of the mercy seat of God. And then he heads out to the tent of, the meet, tent of meeting where the people are gathered. And the people have brought two, two goats with them. And they, they cast lots. They drew straws. They rolled dice. I don't know, however you want to think about it, okay? And what would happen is they would choose one of the goats as the sin offering. And the high priest would take that goat and he would bring it in and he would pull back its head, he would slit its throat, it would splur, spl, spl, ugh, try that, spill his blood. He would take some of that blood, he would sprinkle it uh, in front of the mercy seat again, and what that meant was to do was to cleanse the dwelling place of God, to offer the, the blood sacrifice that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He would return to the tent of meeting, the second goat would be sitting there looking nervous at that point probably, and the people, the, the, the priest would lay his hand on the head of the ghost and he would confess the sins of the people. And then one of the people of the country would, would take the goat and head out, out as far as they could into the wilderness and then hi And the goat would run away. And the man would return to the camp and he would go through some more cleansing rituals and it would all happen so that the sins of the people by the sprinkling of the blood of the first goat were forgiven. The sins of the people by the carrying away or the expiation of the second goat meant that their sins were gone. Arrow. As soon as John the Baptist said, he's going to take away the sins of the world. What he is confessing to the people in that moment is that Jesus Christ drew both straws of Leviticus 16. He was both the bloody sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the scapegoat who carried our sins away. John the Baptist says, behold the one who brings forgiveness. Behold the one who even better brings, you ready? This is the word, freedom. That's what expiation is all about. It's about freedom. We have true freedom in Jesus Christ. What is true freedom in Jesus Christ? Does that mean I can drink light beer and not get made fun of? No, we will still make fun of you. All right. I was like 50-50, but you go with that one, I now I know. I have an elder meeting tomorrow night. You can pray for me. I will apologize now. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't preach last week. I had the week off. I'm a little energized. I don't know if you can tell. Um, what does Christian freedom mean? Does it mean having the liberty to do whatever you want? Not at all. True freedom in Jesus Christ means that your past sin and failure has been emptied of its power. Your past sin and failure has been emptied of any power. You know what that actually means? This is crazy. True freedom in Jesus Christ means your past that you might regret and have shame and guilt over can become your greatest gift. 
How many, how many of us really think our past is our greatest gift? Here's a, just a goofy little question. How many of you um, can think of something? So, so what act, what horrific sin, what selfish action, what, what um, shameful situation of yours in your past that we would throw up on that screen for everybody to see? What would it be? And, and which one would it be that would make sure you never came back to this place again? He was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was actually not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. I'm going to go long, and yet I'm still going to say this. It, it cracks me up that in this moment, the, the religious people are trying to argue about inane religious things or what they pretend is religious things. So he's baptizing more than John. Why is he baptizing more than John? Let's ask Jesus. What should, no, no, how are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? Who gave you the authority to baptize? And Jesus looks at them and says, I'm out. He walks away. There's some wisdom in that. How refreshing for us here to know that Jesus leaves the intramural foolishness of religion but things that aren't the gospel and instead heads face first into the brokenness of an individual. Hey, hey, that's what we're supposed to do. It's not about playing church. It's about the fact there are people who are broken and who are hurting, and that's what Jesus r- runs into here because it says that he, he crosses lines. Look at this, verse 4. I love verse 4. If you write in your Bible, go ahead and circle the first couple words of verse 4. He had to. Hold on. Ooh, 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 teacher, we got a question. Isn't Jesus the son of God? Why does Jesus have to do anything? So if you ever see it say in the Bible, Jesus had to, you should pay attention. What did he have to do? Well, Jesus had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. His well, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, worn up on his journey, sat down. He didn't, he, he didn't, okay, so when it says he had to, were there other options? Yeah, and every other Jew took advantage of those options. Nobody walked through Samaria, but Jesus had to. And then at noon, you know, Jesus is tired, so he's sitting at the well, sends his disciples to get food, <laughs> which that had to be funny too, because they're in Samaria, which no Jew ever goes to. And Jesus is like, I'm hungry, go get some food. And the boys are probably like, Let's go together, guys. <laughs> and at noon, this woman walks in. And, and, and it took her a while to get there. And it's really weird. She would show up to the well at noon. I mean, you can imagine, just knowing her story as we've read through the rest of this, we imagine she was waiting purposefully until there was nobody else left at the well. Um, she was the type of woman who would avoid eye contact with people. She needed to avoid the crowds just in case somebody recognized who she was. She, she would have to navigate through those very tiny, narrow streets to get out the city gate and to go a couple hundred yards outside the city to where the, the beaten down path people would take to get to Jacob's well was. And, and she, she would navigate just staying away from people the whole time. Maybe, 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 maybe she wore a scarf around her face and nobody could recognize it, but she just did not head down the whole way until she made it to that path, particularly around noon, because nobody else was on the path at noon, because it's hot at noon. So maybe it's there she finally feels peace. She finally feels okay. She can breathe easily. Nobody's going to make eye contact with her. Nobody's going to identify her. Nobody's around to whisper. She feels safe. as she walks up the path 
of somebody there. Listen to the conversation in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. She says, give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone to town to buy food. <laughs> How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, then who is saying to you, give me a drink? You would ask him, and he would give you living water. <laughs> Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. Well is deep. Wh where do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, he gave us this well and, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She said, no, everybody who drinks from this water is just going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Oh, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. <laughs> give, me, give me that water so I never have to come back to this place again, so I never have to make eye contact again. Give me this water. And Jesus says, okay, go call your husband and come on back. I don't have a husband, she answered. You, you have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said. You've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. So, so what you've said is actually true. And that's why you're coming to the well at noon. Because that's your story. And that's your past. You, you don't want to talk about it. You don't, you don't want anybody acknowledging it. You don't want to make eye contact. You don't want them bringing it up again. I can give you the water that will get you off the treadmill that you keep finding yourself on as you run from man to man to man to man to man to man. And how does she respond to that? Oh, man, this is so true even today. She responds exactly how most people respond when you start talking about the freedom that Jesus Christ can bring. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see you're a prophet. Now, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. What does she do? She's like, cool, I planned on going to church one day. I was hoping that, that maybe I could get myself all polished up on the outside, get a big enough Bible, walk in, so people are like, oh, we're glad you're here. Come join our Bible study. We're, I was going to go to church, and, and where is church? And what is the right church? I mean, come on, right? Am I right? What church is the right church? And baptism. Have you heard everybody talk about baptism lately? Why does she do that? Because it's going to keep Jesus from talking about her past, her story. Jesus responds with, no. Believe me, woman, an hour's coming when you're going to worship the Father, and it's not going to be on this mountain, and it's not going to be in Jerusalem. You, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But there is an hour coming, and it's now here when the true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's the way the Father wants such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And she is amazed how deep, how amazing this is incredible. Oh, I know the Messiah is coming, she says. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, behold, <laughs> I, the one speaking to you, am he. 
what happens when she hears who he is? <laughs> this is amazing. Remember? Hide your face. Hide your face. Don't let anybody see you. Go at noon. Don't let anybody see you. Don't ever make contact with people. Don't talk to your neighbors. Don't talk to your community. You want nothing to do with people. Just hide your face. Just walk. Just walk. Okay. I'm finally on the path. Oh, there's somebody here. Right? That's her life. But when Jesus get in, gets introduced, what happens? Oh, man, I'm so late. Look at verse 27. Sorry, uh, I'll go verse 28. The disciples come back. And the woman, when the disciples come back, left her water jar, ran to town, and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Wait, what? That's exactly what she was avoiding. And she runs, she's like, listen, yeah, it's me. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six. I know, but this guy told me everything. I can't believe this. He is offering me the freedom to run out here and say, this is my past. And although everything in my past tells me that I'm unlovable, everything in my past tells me I just can't, everything in my past tells me I should be pushed to the outside, guess what? There is a book, there is a Bible, there is a man who says things in red and says, I love you. That's freedom. So when John the Baptist stood before these people, he's saying, listen, you need to understand something. The truth is you have a past and you have a story, and some of it's really jacked up. But there is a greater truth, and the greater truth is this. Jesus Christ is your lamb. Which truth are you going to walk in? Are you going to walk in the truth of your past and let it define you? Or are you going to walk in the path and the truth of your freedom? Now I know, Satan is the great accuser. So Satan's going to continue to whisper in your ear even now, even as we close out our time. He's going to point to your past. He's going to say, you remember what you did? I, honestly, and, and, and this would be, uh, I, I don't wrestle with it all the time, but there are times where I'm like, oh, I cannot believe that we're posting our services online. And it's not because it's like, oh, that shirt didn't match, or, or I told a light beer joke that I'll never talk about again. Um, <laughs> but it's because I know there's people out there that knew me back in 1988, 1989, and 1990. Now, that could be debilitating. That could be um, ministry ending. That could, that could, that stuff, I mean, that could really mess you up. And, and Satan's constantly like, hey, guess who's watching? Guess who's watching? I just got to tell you something. When Satan whispers that, what I need to do, what you need to do, <laughs> is get our hands up just a little higher in worship. <laughs> Say, that's exactly why I'm doing this. Because I know where I came from. And I know the freedom he's given to me. Behold the Lamb of God. Look what he's done for you. Father, thank you for the precious gift of Jesus Christ. I say that so many times, and I'm afraid that it comes off in vain, but I don't, I, I mean it. I, I understand more, some days more than others how precious that gift is. So thank you for the spotless Lamb of God. 
thank you that the Lamb of God came to shed his blood to offer us forgiveness of sins. But Father, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you that he has carried our sins away. Thank you that as Satan whispers into our ear that we have a, a greater truth we can walk in, that we are free and have been set free by the Son of God. God, help us, help us to be in awe as we look at you. Help us to remember what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that behold wouldn't be just an old King James word to us, but it would be a cry of enthusiasm and worship even now as we sing. 